Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Welcome to this week's episode. If you follow me on Instagram, you may remember that I asked you who you wanted to hear on the podcast. And this week's guest was suggested by many of you. And now, having spoken to her, I know why. She is awesome. Lindsay Hookway is a board certified lactation consultant. She's a holistic sleep coach, a pediatric nurse and health visitor. She's also an independent teacher, lecturer and speaker. She is the author of three books, Holistic Sleep Coaching, Let's Talk About Your New Family Sleep and her latest book called Still Awake. She's also the co-founder of the Holistic Sleep Coaching Programme. This is a really powerful episode about trusting ourselves in all areas of parenting, but particularly sleep. And we also talk about how hard that can be when we're exhausted or just bombarded with conflicting information about how to get more sleep for both ourselves and our children, whatever age they are. So in this episode, you are going to learn how to stop stressing about sleep. You're going to learn why nothing works for everyone, the danger of the new sleep industry, how to find your instinct and trust yourself when you're so tired you can't even hear yourself think. You're going to learn about the big sleep myths and how dangerous they can be. Lindsay shares her own journey with sleep, which is incredibly powerful And at the end, Lindsay shares about our sleep as the parent and what to do if you can't sleep when you find yourself having the opportunity to. We also talk about why self-belief is the hardest thing in the world to find as a parent, but the thing that we need most. This is a brilliant episode. I think once you've listened to it, you're going to want to share it with so many of your mum, friends and family. So please do do that if you felt like other people will benefit from hearing these words of wisdom. Let's work together on busting some of these myths and helping us all stop stressing out about sleep. Here's the episode. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. I was just sharing with you over the summer, I asked my lovely community of listeners who they would like me to talk to and your name came up time and time and time again. So I am thrilled that we're going to have this conversation about sleep. I've never actually done a specific episode on sleep, which is interesting given that I've covered off most topics (laughs) relating to motherhood and parenting. And I was reflecting on that this morning. And I think it's because I've always felt like it's such an emotive subject. And I've always been very, very wary of prescriptive ideas or ideologies. But when I was researching you, I felt really drawn to your message and your openness. So I feel really excited to share that with everyone this morning. 
Thank you so much. That's so kind. I was thinking about that actually years ago, and I was reflecting on the fact that it took me actually quite a long time to write my first book for parents. And the reason it took me such a long time to write Let's Talk is because I don't have a method or an acronym or a three-step plan. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, there are so many books out there for parents and they've all got something catchy and memorable. And that's not what I do. And it really put me off writing it because I thought that's what people wanted. But actually what I'm realizing more and more is that people actually don't want that. They're attracted to the idea of something that makes them feel more confident in themselves rather than confident in a method. And well, the rest is history, but I don't believe in saying this is the right way to do something because nothing is ever going to work for everyone. I mean, that in itself is such an important message, isn't it? If we could have a billboard and just say that for parents, like nothing works for everyone. And I think sleep is so emotive. And it does feel like, I would love to get your insight on this. It feels like the World West to me, particularly on Instagram, where sleep as an industry seems to be flourishing, as in there's a massive increase in sleep coaches, sleep experts, sleep consultants. I'm hearing this new title. I'm wondering why that is. And do you think that's a good thing? Oh my goodness. That's a big question. I think it is representative of a drop in our confidence levels in parenting. And I think sleep is something that affects you on a really visceral level every single day. And anybody who's ever been up with a little one who's just not going to sleep for whatever reason, if you've ever sat in that place and you feel like you're in the sleep trenches and you're just like, why aren't you going to sleep? You can't possibly understand how crippling and exhausting on every single level that is until you've been there. And I think this society, this time that we're living in, we are always now reaching out for help with the challenges that are cropping up in our lives. And I think that's a good thing in general. So if we have a feeding problem, we reach out to a feeding expert. If we know we're struggling with our mental health, we might reach out to a counsellor or a psychotherapist or we get some trauma-informed care or, or whatever it is. And I think in lots of ways, sleep is the same. If we're struggling with sleep, it feels normal and natural to reach out for sleep support. I think the difference with sleep is that it's an unregulated industry. So you don't necessarily know what kind of advice you're going to be getting when you reach out for that tip or that help or that support or that reassurance or whatever it is you're looking for. And I think sometimes people don't know what they're going to get until they've already paid their money and perhaps got embroiled in something that maybe they didn't even intend to in the first place. I think it's good and bad that there is so much choice, but I think the burden now seems to be on parents as the consumer of that support to really do their research and make sure that they feel aligned with the person they're working with. I think you're right. I think there's so much controversy in sleep. It's a very divisive topic and a lot of people feel quite conflicted about what approach to take, which is understandable because, you know, as I said before, nothing works for everyone anyway. Yeah. And I think as well, when you get to that place of, I need some help, it tends to be, well, you tell me, I've noticed it tends to be when you're in that sleep deprivation crisis and in that place, 
I remember being in that place with Jessie when she was six months and she's now six. You also can't think clearly. Yeah. It's yeah, very absolutely. hard to make informed, empowered decisions based on, you know, all the things that you're talking about philosophy when you're just like, I just need someone to tell me how I'm going to get more than two hours sleep tonight because yeah. I think I'm going to die. I remember that feeling. Absolutely. The tricky thing is when you feel that tired and oh my goodness, I've been there as well. When you're that tired, if you call for help, what you actually want is a magic wand solution. You just want someone to say, okay, brilliant, pay me some money and I will make your child sleep for five hours straight, which honestly feels like a spa break, doesn't it? Five hours. If, if you've been up every 45 minutes or hour or two hours or whatever it is, that's what you want. The bad news is that's not going to happen. I know that's really obvious, but I think sometimes when we're that almost unhinged with tiredness, we sort of don't realise that whatever we do with sleep is probably going to be harder than doing nothing. And that's the honest truth, because you're either going to have to change something or you're going to have to do something different or it's going to feel uncomfortable. You know, I'm not into the making people feel uncomfortable part, but I'm just saying that in the broad spectrum of all the things that you can do in the sleep world, it's either going to involve lots of crying and stress, or it's going to involve lots of time and change and doing something differently or changing up whatever it is you've been doing. And that's all going to be harder than whatever it is you're doing to just get through tonight. And that's the truth. And it's really hard, therefore, when you're that shattered to think about what approach is right for you and your family when all you really want is the magic wand, which is the only option that isn't available in the first place. What's your journey with sleep? You mentioned that you know that place, that broken place. Well, I've talked about this with a few people on different interviews. So apologies if anyone's heard this before, but my eldest was an incredibly alert baby and she really didn't need a lot of sleep at all. So she barely slept in the daytime. And I remember just pushing her around Bushy Park. We used to live in Southwest London. I would ferociously push her around the park, determined that she was going to have at least one nap in a day. And it just never happened. You know, I, I remember once peeling back this silly little blackout blind, which I don't recommend, actually. It's just a waste of time product. Just use a coat or something, you know, not on a hot day either. But I peeled back this little blackout blind and she was just sitting in the pushchair, just grinning at me. And I just thought, oh, I'm not going to succeed here, whatever success meant for me at the time. And that went on and on and on for probably about 15 months of her just not really sleeping. And then I don't fully understand what happened apart from there was a shift in my mental state. So I got some support for my own mental health. I relaxed a bit about sleep. I accepted that she just wasn't a sleeper and she didn't need a lot of sleep. And around that time, I also realised that actually I don't need a lot of sleep either. And perhaps the apple just hadn't fallen far from the tree. And actually she turned out to have lots and lots of differences, sensory differences, and she had some food issues and all sorts of things. She's very bright. And I think if I'd been able to just look ahead with some sort of time travel machine and see the kind of child she is now, 
She's 12 now in three days time. She's 12 years old. She sleeps brilliantly. She's funny. She's witty. She's sharp. She's kind. She's resilient. She's an amazing kid. And all of those things I worried about that she was going to be sleep deprived and cognitively impaired and overweight, all of the things that are out there in the sleep scaremongering world never came to pass, not a single one of them. And when I delved into that, it's because they weren't evidence-based in the first place. But we're so vulnerable, aren't we? When we're new parents, we've got dodgy mental health, we're recovering, we're depleted, we're unsupported. There's so much noise and there are too many myths out there. And when you've got all of that as your kind of soup in your postnatal world, my goodness, it's no wonder people feel completely at sea. And I suppose that's where I sit. I sit in that place, like bobbing along on a turbulent sea, trying to get as many people in my boat as possible, which is hopefully a place where you feel calmer, more confident, more connected, less stressed about all the rubbish and able to just dial in to who your baby is, what they're like, and know it's not your fault. I had very similar experience. And what is just coming up for me, which I think is so interesting, is a couple of things. First one is that what I witness is that so much of our parenting fear and anxiety isn't about what's happening today. It's about what might happen in the future. And I think that goes beyond everything. Like my six-year-old's a super fussy eater. And actually, like day to day, it's kind of, I worry like, oh my gosh, what if she eats like this forever? What if she's not getting the nutrients that is that projection into the future? And the other thing that, you know, really is coming up for me is around trusting ourselves and our children. Like in that story, like had we been in a society which said some babies nap, some don't, it's all good. Listen to yourself, listen to your baby. How different that experience would have been. But I think one thing that's happened in the parenting industry at large, particularly in sleep, is this, there's a way to do it. Babies need to nap. They need to nap at nine and 12 and four. <laughs> How mad is that? And it just cuts us off from that intuition and truth. And I'm wondering, how does someone, perhaps who's bought all the books and, you know, is in that soup, as you called it, get back to that trust of themselves and their baby and get back to today, it's all good. Tomorrow, it's going to be all good. Removing that projection of fear into the future. I think there's a lot of things that they can do. I think unfollowing accounts that make you feel worse about yourself is a really good first self-care step, actually, I would definitely put it in the self-care bucket because when we're constantly having our confidence eroded and chipped away by these messages that you should be doing it like this. I I just want to bin so many of the myths. I want to bin, you know, seven till seven and the two hour lunchtime naps. I mean, great. If your baby does that, that's wonderful. I'm so happy for you genuinely. But oh my goodness, most babies don't do that. You mentioned instinct and intuition. And I think a lot of people are talking about just trusting your gut, trusting your instinct. I think that's really difficult if A, you have low self-esteem 
And B, there's not very much social modelling happening. And I think that's been much, much worse over the pandemic because we haven't seen other people going through the same thing. So there hasn't been the social modelling. And yes, we are primal beings. We have instincts. Sometimes things feel wrong or just slightly disconnected from how we thought we were going to parent or behave or feel or whatever. But still, even with that instinct, we rely on social modelling because we're social beings and we learn from other people. This is related, I promise. But there's a lovely story about a gorilla who was due to give birth in San Diego Zoo. And when she gave birth to her baby gorilla, I don't know what a baby gorilla is called, actually. Anyway, the baby came and she didn't know what to do with this baby She'd been bred in captivity and she didn't know how to feed the baby. And the baby died and the gorilla became pregnant again. And this time what they did was they got the local branch of La Leche League to come and sit outside the gorilla enclosure during her pregnancy. And the parents, the mothers, all breastfed their babies outside the gorilla enclosure. And guess what? When she gave birth to the second baby, boom, she knew what to do. And for me, it's such a powerful story, not only because we too are primates and we're social, we're born for sociability, we're primed to seek out faces. There's lots of research that shows that babies will instinctively turn their head towards an image, even if it's graphic, like a line drawing, they will turn their face towards images that look similar to human faces. We're primed for it from birth. So it's no wonder to me that if we don't have that social modelling around us and if we are still the victims of 200 years of deviation from the wisdom kind of being in families and communities and you're asking your mum, asking your auntie, how did I sleep? Oh, what did you do when I was awake for two hours in the middle of the blooming night? You know, we've moved away from that into trusting experts who for 200 years have been telling us, well, you need to get that baby on a schedule. You need to do it like this. And if you don't follow our way, you're going to be lost at sea. When actually the truth is, if you don't dial into that instinct and find out who the people are, in that sea that you can trust, then you're going to find it very difficult to listen to your instinct because it will feel completely polarised from what everyone else is saying. I can see how, you know, in that story, which is sad but beautiful, is that, you know, had that gorilla not had the social modelling, as you call it, you can see how if that was a, you know, a human, they would grab a book. In order to get that. But the problem is, as we've been discussing, you know, a lot of the books out there are super prescriptive. They're not trauma informed. They're not kind of with a psychological understanding. A lot of them are written by, you know, nannies. And it's so interesting what you're saying about that social modeling. Can we get that social modeling from places like social media? where you can find accounts like yours, maybe mine and other accounts that have a a message that relates to how you want to be. How else do we do that if that village, if those mothers from the Lecce League aren't on your doorstep showing you how to do it? Well, I think to an extent, yes, we can. And there have actually been a few studies in the last few years looking at the importance of online support groups and social media 
The trouble is that, again, that's unregulated. So anybody can set up, you know, an Instagram or a Facebook group. Anyone can produce funny TikTok videos and watch them go viral. And people love this stuff. They love watching reels and TikTok videos. And, you know, in 15 seconds, there's not an awful lot of information you can impart, really, but they are very powerful because they travel. And I think if people are circumspect about which accounts they follow and which people they choose to go and get pieces of information or reassurance or support or advice, whatever you want to call it from, then yes, I think it can be incredibly powerful. I think we can flood this space with messages about what's normal and what's evidence-based and what's kind and compassionate. The trouble is, I think that there are possibly too many accounts that have got you know a million followers and they're incredibly powerful. It's very difficult for smaller accounts who are actually producing really good content to compete with accounts that are incredibly prescriptive, who have influencer and celebrity endorsements saying, oh, I did this program three days later, my baby's sleeping all night. That's hard to compete with, isn't it? What are some of the big myths? The one that always used to perplex me because I've never seen it is this drowsy but awake put down I mean I've never actually seen a drowsy but awake baby like where did that come from and it seems like that I remember hearing that and thinking god I'm really failing I've never seen with my second I was way more confident and I just ignored the whole thing and she's an amazing sleeper but with my first I was like what is this drowsy and the props I used to play white noise and music and I know that still I play her music to get to sleep. She loves it. But I remember someone saying to me, well, every, what did they say, prop or crutch that you use, it's a rod for your own back because eventually you're going to have to take that away. <laughs> it's like, I remember that anxiety. Like every time I turn on the white noise machine, I'd be like, oh, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. And yet it worked beautifully. It still works beautifully. I play her Kundalini chants and she goes to sleep to, you know, these amazing... It's all based around fear, isn't it? It's planting that seed of fear. If you do this today, you're still going to be doing it when they're 15 and they've just had their invite to a three-day away trip to Cornwall with their friends for school or whatever. And it plays on that anxiety that we have as parents that they're going to need us in this intense way for a really unsustainable amount of time. That's what gets us so anxious because actually, if you really think about it, is it a problem to feed, rock, puddle, carry, whatever it is your baby to sleep or your 18-month-old even to sleep tonight? Is it actually a problem tonight? Probably not. For most people, I appreciate that there are some people who are going to be vehemently disagreeing with that and say, no, I am in that sleep trench hell place. This isn't for you. Most people are okay with that tonight. What they're not okay with is five years of doing it endlessly. That feels unsurmountable. And I think that's one of the problems because actually children grow out of needing us that intensely. It's a slow, gradual process. And a lot of the myths are around trying to scare us into thinking that if we keep on showing up for them, they're going to expect us to show up for them in the same way when that's not true. I agree. Drowsy awake is one of the worst phrases ever coined because I have seen a few little ones do it. 
I call them unicorn babies. They are out there, but my goodness, they're not common. And most babies, if you put a little one who's drowsy down in their cot, bed, wherever, they're just going to wake up in a really powerful way, start yelling. And then you think, oh, great. Well, now I am a completely useless parent because I've tried the drowsy but awake thing. I'm doing the right things in inverted commas. And yet it's failed abysmally. And now I have a screaming awake baby. Now what do I do? Do I pick them up again? And then I feel even more of a failure. Or do I leave them to cry, which doesn't feel right, but I don't know what else to do. That for me is incredibly sad because actually we sort of created a problem that didn't exist in the first place. And then we created a solution that you can usually buy to fix the problem that isn't really a problem anyway, if that makes sense. What are some of the other big myths that are unhelpful? I think seven till seven is a big one. The idea that little ones should be sleeping 12 hours a night. And, you know, I talk all the time about how that's actually not evidence-based. When you look at very large population level data, most babies under the age of two only sleep somewhere between nine and 11 hours. So most of us are trying to put our babies to bed too early And then what happens is either we have an epic marathon length bedtime because they're simply not tired enough or they wake up numerous times in the early part of the evening because they just haven't got enough sleep pressure on board. That's that drive to be asleep when you've been awake for long enough. Or they wake up in the middle of the night, which is actual torture for two hours, which is fairly common. That's called a split night. Or they wake up really early. So, you know, if you're putting your little one to bed at half past six, thinking you're doing the right thing, and your little one wakes up at half four, they probably only needed 10 hours of sleep. But still, we feel like we've messed it up. And then we look for an early rising solution when actually that's not going to fix the problem because you can't make someone sleep longer than they're going to sleep anyway. So all you can do is redistribute the sleep so that it suits you better which isn't easy, but it can be done. But you certainly can't try and force somebody to get an extra two hours of sleep into their 24-hour day if they simply don't need it. I wish stuff like that was more widely known because it would take so much pressure off. I don't know. It's exhausting, isn't it? (laughs) What else are some of the unhelpful things? I think the misinterpretation of self-soothing, what self-soothing is, that little ones can get back to sleep if they become upset or dysregulated that you need to leave them to self-soothe and and by that people normally mean just leave them until they stop crying but there's a misunderstanding about what's actually happened and I'm not here to judge the people that have done or have contemplated or will do that but we need to understand what that actually is as opposed to what it isn't so what they haven't done is cognitively processed oh it's okay I'm fine all my basic needs are met I can just go to sleep because it's bedtime that's the myth that we're sold but actually what's happened is they go oh right okay well no one's coming right well I can't keep up crying for you know ages and ages and ages so actually I'm really exhausted I'm just actually gonna allow sleep to overtake me at this point or some babies have kind of a shutdown response where they just go to sleep because actually you cannot sustain crying and that stress response indefinitely. At some point, your system just gets overwhelmed and you do just go to sleep, but it's not necessarily a restful sleep. And as I often explain to people, you can 
go to sleep if you're incredibly stressed and anxious about something. But think about the quality of sleep that you get. If you wake up the next day and you know you went to sleep after a bad fight with your spouse or you've had a really difficult day at work and the situation's unresolved, your quality of sleep is not brilliant. So of course you can appear to be asleep, but we don't want to assume that that's necessarily restful, peaceful sleep. It's not necessarily that at all. Yeah, it's so interesting. What I kind of see in a lot of these messages that are out there, as we've been talking about, is this push for independence. And what was game-changing for me and how I totally changed my approach of my second was that I came to understand that independence comes actually from a total feeling of confidence, which when children are young is from dependence. And the difference between my oldest and my youngest is fascinating because with my youngest, you know, I wasn't who I am today. I was, you know, brought into to some extent. She has to learn to sleep independently. She has to, you know, I push that independence. And still today I have to cuddle her to sleep because I think, you tell me, I think I pushed her to be independent with her sleep too quickly, thus leaving an insecurity. Whereas with my little one, I cuddled her you know, and now she almost, she says, bye-bye, mummy. You know, and she's, you know, and I put her down and she's just got that base of dependence and confidence and trust. Do you see that this kind of push for independence too soon? I do. And I definitely think that message that we create independent humans through meeting their needs for dependence first. That's absolutely true. Do I think you can justifiably take responsibility? I don't mean just you. I mean, anyone else who can relate to that? Not necessarily. I think you can probably, you and everyone else who feels like that can probably let that go because children are just inherently different. They have different personalities. Some children are naturally more anxious. You know, there are lots of confounding variables, dare I say it, not to sound too researchery, but, you know, birth order, parental mental health, societal influences, peers, all sorts of things. So I don't think parents who have perhaps attempted some form of manipulation of independence levels can fully take the responsibility that their child is perhaps a bit more don't want to say needy, but you know what I mean? If they need you more for a longer period, I don't think we can necessarily attribute that all to what happened in the early weeks, months and years. And I think secure attachment is bigger than just what we do. I think it's who we are and the relationship that we have with our kids and how we connect and how we show up. I'm sure that you, me and thousands of other people all showed up in a bunch of different ways. The trouble is that we tend to remember the bits that we're most ashamed of, most wish we could go back and have a do-over with. I've forgiven myself for this, but I tried pick up, put down with my eldest. I was a broken woman by about eight or nine months. And we did this ridiculous charade of picking her up when she was crying and then putting her back down when she wasn't crying. And it was so ridiculous. I picked her up and put her back down about 140 times. It was just nuts. At one point in this ridiculous debacle that took a good two and a half hours of my evening, I just had a, an epiphany that this is ridiculous. And I just didn't do it. I just lay down with her, snuggled her up next to me and we both fell asleep. Sometimes I think when you see flashes of 
them needing you more, you can't help but question and worry that, you know, are they trying to make up for lost time? Are they needing something now because we didn't give it then? I think it's bigger than that. I think it's broader than that. I think kids are more resilient than that. I think that we need to forgive ourselves for those things. And for what it's worth, my kids are the opposite way around to yours now. So I did try to do a little bit of independence pushing with my eldest, not in a major way, but in a minor way. And with my little one, I just couldn't be bothered. She just bed shared and breastfed whenever and we just winged it for years she is my second who's a bit more needy and needs me for her she worries a lot about leaving me or me going away so if I travel for a conference or whatever she gets very anxious and worried about that and this predated her chronic illness so lots of people know that my youngest is a cancer survivor so she had a long out of treatment. So one argument could be, well, you know, that's because she's had a lot of traumatic hospitalisation and procedures and whatever. But actually she was like that before. I remember her going to her childminder for the first time. I went back to work with her when she was just over two and she really, really worried about it. She cried and she clung to my clothing and didn't want me to leave. And this was the child who was literally Velcro baby for a good two years. So that's our sample of two. So we probably can't draw any solid conclusions from that. However, I suppose the the message is let it go for anyone who needs to hear that. It's such a beautiful message because I think, you know, we do live in this society and, you know, my podcast is part of that, you know, I'm putting all this information out. And sometimes I say to my husband, I kind of think I know too much. Like I find it hard sometimes, you know, I'm analyzing often like you know why is she like that why is she that why is she that but I love the ease that you bring to it which is just you are who you are they are who they are like can we just connect in this moment and I think you know when we think about that all the stresses just kind of wash away I think a huge part of reclaiming that instinct is just having somebody who can be our champion just one person saying, you're doing a great job, actually. Yeah, this is hard. We'll get to that. We can come back to that piece in a minute. We'll talk practical and we'll talk how I can show up for you better or whatever. But actually, you're doing an amazing job. You are enough. You don't need to get it right all of the time. 50%, that'll do. You know, you don't need to be the perfect parent. There's a lot of pressure for perfection at the moment, isn't there? It's everywhere. And I think there are some accounts and some people doing a really good job of reminding us that we don't need to be perfect. But, you know, a lot of us have very high standards and we don't like messing things up and screwing things up or feeling like we might possibly have screwed it up. And so I think we just need sometimes one person to co-regulate us. I talk about the fact that our children need co-regulating a lot, but I also think it's important to talk about the fact that as adults we need to be co-regulated because if we're not regulated how on earth can we regulate a dysregulated child and I think there's that line in about a boy do you remember where the little boy says one's not enough you need another adult and it's a really good piece of advice we just need another adult we need somebody showing up it can be a friend a partner somebody that you admire on social media anyone but someone needs to come and just pour balm on your anxious self and say, you're doing a great job. I see you. I see the hard work that you're putting in and you are more than enough 
for your little one and they're going to be okay. You don't need to take responsibility for every naff thing that happens in your child's life from here on. You are doing enough by showing up and meeting their needs as often as you can and in as many ways as you can. And I think when we've got that one person, then we can begin to filter out the unhelpful stuff and just begin to listen to what our gut is telling us. But it starts from that place of regulation and confidence and self-esteem, doesn't it? Who was that one person for you and has it changed over the years? It has. I've had lots of people that have drifted in and out of my life. Certainly some very good friends. I remember, so don't judge me, anyone, but I was feeling pretty unhinged. I can't remember how many months postpartum I was, but I was driving through the local town and there was this person in front of me driving at about 15 miles an hour. And I didn't really have anywhere that I needed to be under a time pressure, but I just felt this unbelievable rage rising up inside me. I was behind this lovely dear old gentleman who if I ever met I would apologize profusely to but he was driving so slowly through the center of town and making me miss all the lights and I was just incensed and I drove right up behind him I was tailgating him and then I started flashing and then after the third light that he made me miss I actually beeped my horn I was gesticulating and I was throwing my hands up I was honestly losing it Anyway, I recognised that he turned off, thank goodness. I'm very pleased for him (laughs) that he got out of my way because I feared for his safety, the poor gentleman. Anyway, I realised, actually, do you know what, Liz, this is normal. You are losing it. And I drove straight to a dear, dear friend's house who thankfully was at that time very, very nearby. And I drove in. I was a wreck. I was sobbing. Lizzie was crying in the back of the car. I just got out of the car seat and I plonked her down in my best friend's living room and I just sobbed, sobbed and sobbed. I have no idea what I was upset about, but I was just in a really dark place and I just needed my friend to just go, wow, sit down, putting the kettle on right now. You don't need to say, but just come and sit and be. And she was just that balm that I needed. I think we all occasionally get to that place, maybe not road rage, but we all get to that psychological place of, honestly, I can't take anything else. And if it had been somebody in a supermarket, it would have been me being furious that they were taking too long getting their stuff on the conveyor belt. It could have been anything that tipped me over the edge. I just happened to be behind the wheel of the car. And and for me, it was the moment of thinking, I am dangerous. I'm not only dangerous to myself, but I'm dangerous to my baby and to other people. And I need to sort myself out before something bad happens. And I did. You know, she made me an appointment with the doctor and I went and got some help. I'm not saying that we need to get to that absolute pit before we realise that we need to reach out for someone. But I think we need to be able to recognise when we are at the end of our own resources and ideally get those people in place around us who can be there for us and pick us up when we're feeling wretched. What were some of the before that moment and that that releasing, it sounds like. What were some of the warning signs for you that perhaps you could have picked up earlier? 
I think the obsession. So I was obsessed with sleep. It doesn't have to be sleep. It might be something else. You know, as a health professional, I've worked with and met and, you know, had the extraordinary privilege of supporting people who've been obsessed with something else. It might be their birth story. It might be a neighbor or a family relationship or their partner or whatever it is. But I think obsession is a warning sign. For me, it was obsession about sleep. I thought about nothing else apart from sleep from the moment I woke up in the morning, which usually had been after about 10 minutes sleep. And I thought about sleep all day long. I couldn't get my mind off it. And I think if I had sought help at that point, I think somebody would have picked up the fact that I was overanalyzing I was worrying too much about things. I was anxious. I was fretting and whatever. So that's definitely one thing. I think also not being able to sleep when given the opportunity to sleep. That's always a red flag. And that goes for trauma. That goes for anxiety. That goes for depression. Some people who are depressed, as you know, I'm sure, sleep loads. They almost can't wake up. Whereas other people just can't switch off. And for me, it was the latter. So my sympathetic nervous system was just stuck in fight, flight, go mode. I just couldn't dial down and switch off. I'm still working on that, actually. I'm still not very good at being still and doing nothing. But I think if you get to the point where if you're given the opportunity and you can't sleep, so I would have good friends coming over and offering to walk Lizzie around the park. She wasn't even in the same house as me so that I could just nap for an hour in the day. Or if my husband occasionally came home from work early and he said, look, I'll deal with the first wake up or two. You just go to bed early. And I couldn't sleep. I just lay there overthinking, overanalyzing, churning thoughts, getting up, checking, you know, just so hypervigilant. So I definitely think that is another sign that perhaps you're just getting to the end of your own resources if you're obsessing if you're unable to switch off and, and sleep and certainly if you're if you're not finding any joy if nothing's funny anymore if nothing is enjoyable i think we almost need to educate the support crews around don't we if you're noticing that a loved one is just not enjoying life the way they used to if they're not able to just down tools and just watch a bit of crap telly, then actually that's your cue to step up and say, look, you don't seem yourself. What can we do? How can I help you? How can I step up? What needs to change? I think that's so important. What did you learn and what are you continuing to learn about yourself through that experience and the work that you do now? Oh, wow. I've learned so much. I've learned that I don't need much sleep. I've learned that through great hardship comes great compassion. That's definitely something that has been helpful. And it's why I wouldn't go back and change a thing. Not any, well, maybe cancer. We could have lived without that. But I think when you have endured something grim for many years, whether that's sleep deprivation or mental health problems or illness or whatever, it definitely makes you dig deep into your compassion reserves. I think you have to be careful with that though, because the other thing I've learned about myself is that I get compassion fatigue. I get a bit done and over, you know, giving out to other people. So I've had to learn when to say, actually, I don't have capacity for that. I can't take that on. I can't take on 
clients or I, you know, I, I can't take on that project. Or, no, I can't write that book or whatever. But I've had to learn that I need to say no before I reach a pit where I'm struggling and I'm panicking and throwing all my toys out the pram. So I've got better at recognizing that. I'm still learning how to slow down and be. I'm not very good at just sitting on the sofa and just watching TV. I genuinely don't tend to stop very easily. So I really am trying to make that a discipline and I'm getting better at it. But yeah, work in progress as we all are. Me too. I'm learning that. And it's interesting you mentioned you know, about the parasympathetic nervous system and the link, of course, to sleep. If someone is in that place that you were describing, which was they can't even sleep when they've got the opportunity to sleep and their children might be way older, right? This isn't just for, I think even naming it as you did is super helpful. Like this isn't a mental thing. Actually, this is a automatic response in your body. But how does someone start to move so that they can get some more rest and sleep if they're struggling with that? I think there are things that you need to do when it's morning and you can call on resources. So getting some support, whether that's your GP, counsellor, psychotherapist, good friend, partner, whatever, that there are some things that you can do tomorrow. Things you can do today, if it's one o'clock in the morning and you've been in bed for two hours and you're not asleep, the best thing to do is to not try to literally leave the room. That's actually the same for children. If you spend a lot of time awake and alert in the place that is supposed to be associated with rest and peace and sleep and not being alert, then actually that can create a really dodgy sleep hygiene and it can sort of fool your brain into thinking, actually, this isn't the place where we sleep. This is actually the place where we think and get stressed out and get annoyed and frustrated. So we want to remove all of those negative feelings from the place that is supposed to be about sleep and rest and peace. So leaving the room and waiting till we're absolutely exhausted and we literally can't keep our eyes open. And that's when you go to bed. There are some really simple things that you can do around, you know, chamomile tea, hot baths, making sure the bedroom's cool. But, you know, I think in terms of your mental state, if you're in that place where you just can't calm down, you can't switch off and you can't rest, often just changing the scenery is the first thing that you can do. If it's the daytime, I go outside. For me, that is fairly regulating. Just being outside, feeling maybe not sun because it's England and it's almost October. But, you know, just feeling daylight on your skin can be incredibly powerful. I know it's so trite and cliche almost, but it does work. And good old escapism. So for me, getting lost in a book, but for other people that might be TV or it might be calling a friend or it might be journaling, you know, anything, anything to quiet in your mind, whatever works for you. Meditation and mindfulness doesn't work for me, but I often recommend it for other people because it's so evidence-based and it does work for so many people. But yes, you need to find ways of shifting your sympathetic nervous system into the parasympathetic. And I talk about this in terms of sleep all the time. I often say that you can't sleep with your foot on the gas pedal. And what I mean, of course, is that, you know, if your sympathetic nervous system is activated, and that doesn't mean necessarily stress, that just means being alert, you can't sleep in that state. You need to be able to shift into the parasympathetic state. So whatever it takes to get you there, to get your foot off the gas pedal, 
slow down. That's what you need to do. Often if you take the focus off trying to go to sleep, but focus more on just, I need to calm down. I need to relax. I need to recognize what state my body's in right now. And I need to shift it. Then sleep will come organically when you've got to that place. And is it the same for older children I was keen to kind of touch on that because I know loads of people listening will be out of those kind of baby years is it the same for older children is that why you know we're told it's so important to have that kind of relaxing bedtime routine and I know you talk about silly time if you could share about that as well as part of that I think would be really interesting for people yes I think what often happens in practice is that people focus on that bedtime routine for babies And then it sort of vanishes a little bit for a number of years as children get older, because it feels like, oh, well, we've sorted out baby bedtime now, so we don't need to do all those things. But actually, it is really important to keep up those activities that shift children and adults. So this is just as applicable for teens and adults and your parents and whatever, because we need to be able to get into that state of rest in our nervous system because that's where sleep occurs so we need to get into that parasympathetic state and you mentioned silly time I talk about silly time a lot for children of any age because often children are carrying tensions and frustrations and niggles and annoyances and playground bust-ups and peer breakdowns and all of those things It doesn't matter whether they're GCSE students and they're stressing about exams or if they've just been ditched by their first boyfriend. They're going to have stuff that's gone on in their day that they're trying to process. And because they're kids, they don't have a complete faculty of skills yet to be able to cognitively process what's gone on. And so they tend to just feel it. You know, they're like shaken up bottles of Coke. You know, lots of people talk about that Coke bottle analogy. If, you know, you shake a bottle of Coke up, it gets all fizzy and tense. And then when you take the lid off, it just explodes everywhere. And kids are a bit like that. They get shaken up throughout their day and they need an outlet to be able to, you know, let off steam, literally. And so what I talk about with silly time is rather than think, right, we've got to just make bedtime really calm and quiet and relaxing so that they can go to sleep. That's really important, but only after they've had an opportunity to let the fizz out. And so activities that help them release stress and tension and frustration or get them talking are really, really useful because it's really difficult to get into the parasympathetic state if actually your mind is still buzzing with all the things that have irritated you throughout your whole day. And children are inherently really physical. So I recommend things like jumping up and down, a dance party, jumping on the trampoline, kicking a football around, big body play if that's appropriate and it's consensual, tickling again with the same caveats. But anything that gets kids laughing, laughter is a brilliant way of releasing endorphins and getting that stress out. But also all mammals release stress and cortisol through movement. So you see this in the animal kingdom as well. You know, you after a, a massive chase my my dogs try and chase bunnies but if you watch nature programs and you watch lions chasing antelope every time they finish that chase they do a big body shake and what they're doing is they're releasing all of that adrenaline and cortisol and 
kids do the same. So when we're stressed out, we just need to move our bodies. So it's counterintuitive if they've got all that pent up frustration and tension to try and keep them still for their bedtime routine. And that's often why bath time is a complete disaster if they haven't had a chance to get those wiggles out of their system because they end up kind of getting all wiggly and squirrely and going a little bit nutso in the bath, which is not what anyone wants, especially if you've got a leaking bath like we have at the moment. We're just going to end up with a flood and really hyperactive children as well. So make space to let them get their wiggles out or their fizz or their tension or whatever you want to call it, and then have a quiet, relaxing bedtime routine. I'm not saying for a second that, you know, we should be recommending a dance party with a disco ball and then straight to bed that's not a great idea because they're probably still going to be high on those endorphins but you need to set aside some time to let that happen before you go into calm down yeah we do this the girls came up with it actually it wasn't our idea where when we come upstairs and it's still probably like 45 minutes an hour until they're going down but we bring them upstairs and and they just go nuts on our bed. They just jump up and down. And it's absolutely hilarious because the little one has no idea what's going on, really. She looks like the drunk uncle at the wedding, just running around the bed. And then <laughs> Jessie's kind of jumping. And yeah, I love it because it's trauma-informed, isn't it? You know, this is the work of Peter Levine and, you know, other amazing people that we have so lost touch with the physical way that we release stress and I just love that I think it's brilliant is there anything else like that before we we're winding up to close that you want to share before I ask you the final question one little tip that I have that I could quickly share is about trickle charging and supercharging children's love tanks so if we imagine that children have a love tank sometimes the message that parents get is around the fact that they need to be present and available to fill that love tank. But I call that the trickle charge. It's really important to know about the supercharge as well, because for parents who work or if children are out at school all day, you can't trickle charge because you're not present. You're not with them. So, you know, there's no opportunity to do that. And we need to spend time with the people that we love in order to have that love tank filled up. But we need to have different tools because we can't assume that we're just with our kids all day, every day. It's not realistic or sustainable in today's kind of lifestyle. So the supercharge, that could literally just be the silly time. It could be 10, 15 minutes of just bonkers time at the end of the day. It could be a really, really focused time without phones, you know, put the phone away, no distractions, but just 10 or 15 minutes, just hanging out, just doing whatever they want to do. No expectations that you'll do anything in particular, but just supercharging that love tank because it's really, really obvious in lots of ways that if kids haven't had that love tank filled up, of course, they're going to procrastinate at bedtime because they're desperately trying to get that connection that they've missed all day. It's normal to miss the people that we love, right? So for me, that's one of the great benefits of silly time. And then that nice relaxing bedtime routine, because if you've laughed and mucked about for 10, 15 or 45 minutes in your case, it's very difficult then to be angry and frustrated with someone when you're laughing. So from that place of laughter and silliness, then you can actually have a really nice connected bedtime. And then 
kids are much less likely to procrastinate and do the what we call curtain calling behavior so can I have my drink I've lost my teddy I really need this very special thing that I've never asked for before but suddenly it's the most important thing in the world all kids do that from time to time but you can definitely reduce the number of times that happens by just investing and I know it means digging deep And I often call that time of the day the gutter of the day because we're depleted. We kind of want to be done parenting. But if you can dig deep for that last half hour, it makes such a big difference. And you're likely to get more of an evening if you've done that first. Yeah, I love that. One of the most popular episodes that I've done on the podcast is with Joanna Fortune. I don't know if you know her. And and she does these 15 minute series. She's a brilliant child psychologist and the episode was called, you know, how to connect with your child in 15 minutes a day. And it's exactly what you're sharing. She said, you know, we've got this idea that we have to have these elaborate days out. We have to spend days and hours. And she said, it's actually pure presence for 15 minutes fills up. I love that term, you know, the love tank. And I think the reason that was so popular is because, you know, particularly for working parents is the pressure that we can put ourselves under and the guilt that we're not doing it. And I think, you know, what you've just said has really underscored that whole episode because it's so achievable. It's hard, as you say, because you're knackered. and But it's so achievable compared to what sometimes we're told we need to do. And I, I just think, think people, it's beautiful. Well, I think people have kind of had enough of being told that, they need to be at home with their children for the first three years of their child's life. I mean, yes, that's an amazing thing to do if that suits you and it fills everybody's bucket and it's achievable and financially, all of those things. Wonderful. I'm not knocking it at all. But for a lot of people, that feels so unachievable and it just leads to a feeling of falling short So often, if we can focus on what we can do rather than feeling guilty about what we can't or don't do, it's just a better place to start. It's a springboard, isn't it, for positivity and, yeah, Yeah. don't feel guilty. Guilt is a really, really pointless emotion in lots of ways. I agree. We'll do another episode on guilt. (laughs) That's a whole other big topic, isn't it? Oh, boy. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think probably the bedrock of all of it is self-belief. I think if I could wave a magic wand and help parents to know they're enough and that they are incredible just as they are, that they are the right parent for their child and their child is the right child for them. I wish all parents had that self-belief. I think when you're parenting from a place of knowing that and feeling self-confident, I think lots more parenting tasks become more intuitive and easier. And there's a kind of oils the wheels, doesn't it? When we know that we're enough, everything else feels more sustainable. That's beautiful. Thank you. What a message for everyone to take away is just getting a little bit more self-belief thank you so much I've loved it it's been a joy thank you so much for having me so that was the episode I hope you really enjoyed it please do share it if you are listening and nodding along and thinking I just wish that some of my mum friends who are really struggling with sleep could hear this then send it to them You can open up the episode, click share link and just pop it into WhatsApp and it will send them straight to the episode. Or when I share about it on Instagram, just 
tag them in and all the links will be in my bio. Also, if you haven't already, please do join my mailing list, which you can do on my website, motherkind.co. Every week you will hear more about the episode, which I send out to the mailing list. You'll also be the first to know about events, talks, and other exciting ways that you can get more Motherkind in your life. So that was the episode and I'm wishing you a beautiful rest of your week.